Good morning to you. And a happy Father's Day as well. Many of you are familiar with the common corporate practice known as the annual review. And through the anonymity of the internet, some folks in HR have compiled some of the most humorous annual performance statements, supposedly culled from actual personnel files. And here is a sample of a few. Number one, employee has delusions of adequacy. <laughs> Number two, employee works well when under constant supervision and cornered like a rat in a trap. Number three, employee sets low personal standards then consistently fails to meet them. What does this have to do with our passage today? Well, over the course of the next four Sundays, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4 together, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 4 from several different angles. And today, we're in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4, the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4, and we're going to look at one subject, and that subject is the Christian's ultimate evaluation, the Christian's ultimate evaluation. Now we're going to have to set the table today. We're going to have a number of points that address the topic from different angles and then the last point with many subpoints deals with just our text. And so it's quite cumbersome. So Miss Beth has been very helpful and she has made a blue insert. So there's some background material in the first few points and then starting at verse verse 4, we get point 4 we get into all of the nitty-gritty of our passage. So if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you today, I'd invite you to turn to the Blue Pew Bible to page 1212, and you will find 1 Corinthians 4. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in Scripture today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that You've given us Your Word as a light unto our path. We pray, Lord Jesus, that today, as we look at a subject that is fraught with misunderstanding, Uh, that we would get a a biblical clarity, that we would see the nuance of all this, that we would look under the whole counsel of God and we would see what is from what isn't, and that we would hold fast to your truth as a result, that we would evaluate uh, only that which we are called to evaluate, and we would leave ultimate evaluation of your servants up to you because you are the only one qualified to understand the nuances of that situation. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen? First five verses, 1 Corinthians 4, page 12.12. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of a steward that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Hmm. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, if you've just joined us in Corinthians, it's important to understand uh, that the church in Corinth was buffeted by numerous thorny problems. In fact, 
basically from chapter 1 to chapter 16, it's, it's dealing with problems and questions and concerns of a, of a church that's being battered by the culture quite severely. And, and the first problem that Paul dealt with, in fact, he spends a quarter of his epistle on this subject, is that the church was riven with divisions. The church had split into cults of, of personality. They foisted their, their favorite preachers into the stratosphere of celebrity. Instead of uniting around Christ and the cross, they were dividing around men. And each Corinthian Christian made an evaluation as to the efficacy and necessity of various preachers' ministries. These saints sat in judgment regarding each preacher's perceived relevance and eloquence and influence, thereby assessing what they thought was that preacher's usefulness to Jesus. But here in our passage, God's Word is going to pour cold water over all of that banter. Contrary to the ways of the world, Scripture is going to tell us today that that preachers are not rival leaders, but they're helpers and they're overseers. They're, They're servants and they're stewards over the house of God and the mysteries of His Word. According to 1 Corinthians 4, ministers are managers accountable to Jesus. They're not celebrities accountable to their constituencies. There's a big difference between those two. Our passage today is going to help us think about the Christian's ultimate evaluation before God. And so in this regard, the Bible is going to forbid us from from premature, from, from immature, from incomplete and therefore incorrect assessments that we would otherwise give in our evaluation. Now before we speak about what this passage is addressing, that's going to be point four and all the subpoints in your outline today, uh, we need to speak about what the passage is not addressing because this is one of those topics that, that can sort of, if you take it in isolation, be twisted into things Scripture isn't saying. Some saints will very quickly use 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 5 as a, as a sort of shield against all correction and all evaluation and any and all situations. And, and that's not what Paul is saying at all. Uh, when lovingly corrected, lovingly corrected, some saints will quickly spout, wait a minute, it's the Lord who judges me. Meaning, I, I don't want to hear it, right? How dare you? Who are you? Uh, They're quick to quote Jesus on this. See if you know this one. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Verse we kind of have handy at the Rolodex, ready when necessary. But friends, that's a bit of a fudge. It's a little bit of a dodge. The Bible tells us to preach the whole counsel of God. And that means we must lay one scripture next to another scripture so that we get the full biblical picture. And often a single scripture or solo passage will will tell us a a nuance of a subject, but it's not necessarily a blanket statement of all there is to know about a subject, much less all that God wants us to know about a subject. And, And so that is very true with this very familiar judge nod, lest ye be judged. In that context, Jesus is speaking very clearly against judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. Uh, when we have a holier-than-thou attitude, and so we share a condescending glare onto others who we think are less than us. Uh, It's when we inspect the speck in our brother's eye and miss the the log in ours. That's judgmentalism. 
Isn't it interesting that our culture that knows so little Scripture is quick to quote Jesus in Matthew 7 when he says, judge not, lest ye be judged. But curiously, our culture of tolerance will betray its ignorance. For while everyone can seemingly quote Jesus in Matthew 7, no one seems to remember what Jesus said in John 7. In John 7.24, the same Jesus that says judge not, referring to judgmentalism, John 7.24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Huh. So there's one situation where Jesus says don't judge, and there's another situation where he says you must judge. In fact, you must judge rightly. And and, and so judgment we're going to see in our first few points this morning from other scriptures is unavoidable, and indeed judgment is entirely biblical. The Bible repeatedly calls the Christian to Various kinds of judgment, of discernment, of evaluation. To judge between truth and error. To judge between a light and dark. To judge between uh, good and evil. To judge between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. There's a lot of discernment, a lot of judgment that's necessary. In fact, to be discerning is not the mark of a poor Christian. It's the mark of a mature Christian. And we can see that clearly in Scripture. In Hebrews 5.14... The Bible says, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Oh. And so, what we need to understand is that judgmentalism is unbiblical. We ought not ever be part of that. But the use of judgment is biblical, and indeed it's it's critical if we're going to be mature saints. Now our passage today tells us that we should not, indeed we cannot, evaluate another brother ultimately. But the rest of Scripture tells us we do have to exercise judgment temporally. And there's a a difference, and most Christians miss this. And so look at point one on your outlines today. Uh, For the first three points, we're going to look at some other places that tell us that what is okay, and then four on what isn't Okay, and so number one is this, Christians must temporally, in the now, not in eternity, must temporally evaluate whether we're to evangelize or whether we're to disciple our neighbor. You do one or the other, not both. The Great Commission calls us all to make disciples of all peoples and and to teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. But, But the Great Commission is first a call to conversion through evangelism, then it's a call to transformation through discipleship. And you have to have your order right. We evangelize the lost. We disciple the saved. That means you need to know the audience before you. Because if you try to evangelize the saved, you're you're wasting your time. They're already saved. And, And if you try to disciple the lost, you're wasting your time because they're dead. There's no point, friends in washing corpses. If the stench is intrinsic because they're rotting from the inside due to spiritual death, then the problem is they need life. They don't need to be cleaned up a little bit around the edges. When Peter stood at Pentecost, his message to the lost was was not to try harder 
not to live better. Oh, they needed to do that, but that wasn't their big problem. That wasn't what was going to really make a difference. Listen to Peter at Pentecost, the first Christian sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What do sinners need to do? Sinners need to repent. And God will forgive through Jesus Christ. No matter what you did, no matter how big the gulf, Jesus can bridge the gulf between the sinner and God. And that's why He's the Savior of men. But too many times in church history, saints try to disciple lost people. We try to get lost people to look like the redeemed. And it doesn't work. It can't work. At best, you're going to teach people how to, you know, to live uh, outwardly uh, more in conformity to something that looks sort of churchy. But our goal isn't to make sinners look better. It's to see sinners transformed by the gospel of grace. And so if you come here today and, 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 and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is the one and only thing God wants to talk to you about today. And we'll talk about that at a, at a point in the sermon today. But you need to understand that, that as a Christian, we need to understand who we're speaking to. And that, that takes some discernment. That takes some judgment. Now, if someone does have new life in Jesus Christ, God's will for them is to, to walk in the newness of life. Romans 6 is clear on this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Because uh, that way grace might abound more. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So to that new Christian, we encourage them to walk like Jesus, to grow in Christ's likeness. After justification, the Bible teaches we go through sanctification. That is, after we have been evangelized, then we need to be discipled. 1 Corinthians 6.11 uh, calls those of us headed to heaven to cease being of the worldly leaven. In fact, it says this, you know, don't live like that anymore because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what spirit is that? That's the, the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit will make us a holy people, but we can't expect people who are not yet saved to behave in ways that are redeemed. It's ridiculous. Now, even as we discern uh, who to evangelize versus who to disciple, and that's, that takes some thinking, that takes some judgment, uh, Jesus is going to call you to a certain level of judgment even among the lost. 
Uh, we are to discern not who's a terrible sinner and who isn't and, and who has room in heaven and who doesn't. No, uh, every sinner is available for heaven. Paul was a murderer and yet he became an apostle. But, but God, uh, Jesus tells us there's a level of judgment we must have with the lost and it's simply this. We are to discern, is this person ripe and ready to hear the gospel? Or is this person right now not receptive to the gospel? They're hard-hearted and, and will sort of reject and attack it. In Matthew 6, 7, Jesus says this, Do not give to the dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So, so you see, you need to judge between, is this person lost or saved? And if they're, if they're lost, are they, are they receptive to me sharing the gospel? Or are they not receptive? And if they're not receptive, you pray for them. You can always pray for anybody. And God can do more through prayer than we can do through eloquent argument. We need to remember that. So we need to understand that as Christians, judgment is clearly necessary. Judgment is biblical. It, it, this isn't bluster or conjecture. It is the clear teaching of numerous scriptures. Uh, turn to the very next chapter. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. And you tell me if the Christian is called to some level of judgment but never judgmentalism. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, the lost people, or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's not at all concerned about judging the lost people in their sin. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. For, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, lost people? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church you're to judge? God judges those outside, so purge the evil person from among you. We're going to deal with that in a few Sundays, and we'll talk about what is and isn't happening there. But one thing is clear, there's judgment in there, isn't there? There's discernment in there. Whatever that means, it does not mean that there's no discernment in that situation. So Scripture says we don't need to judge the lost. We need to evangelize the lost. And if you're the kind of Christian that sort of keeps score on everyone else's situation, you're wrong. You need to start praying for and sharing Christ with people that need life. However, among the saints, there's a, there's a need for discipleship. And that brings you to point two on your outlines. Other passages of Scripture teach us that Christians must temporally evaluate if my brother needs assistance if he's become entangled in the things that would strangle. Uh, you and I must, must look out for our brother and sister in Christ in a non-judgmental way, but in a way that does require discernment, judgment, evaluation. We must temporally evaluate if my brother needs assistance if he's entangled in that which will strangle. And Galatians 6 says this very clearly. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, they're, they're, they're just, they can't get themselves out of it, they, they love Jesus, but, but they're getting defeated. If someone's caught in sin, you who are spiritual should judge them mercilessly. That's what it says, right? No. But that's what sometimes God's people have done, right? Here's this person, and it's clear they love Jesus, and it's clear right now they're being defeated by something that they ought to have victory over. And Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in the sin, they're, they're struggling to get out of it, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, right? 
James 5 says this, Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, then someone brings him back. So, so you have somebody who's wandering away from the teachings of God, and, and you bring him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now here's what judgmentalism does. Judgmentalism says, I am holier than thou. Judgment says, brother, be holy as God is holy. Let me help you navigate this high calling because who is worthy of such things? Do you see the difference? Judgmentalism, I'm better than you. Tut, 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 I'm going to sit and strut and peacock and peck. And, 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 and judgment says, wow, I think you're in a situation. Can I pray with you? Can I come alongside you? Can we, I don't think you're where God wants you to be. Can I help you? One is biblical and beautiful and one is not. One is common amongst Christians, and one is not. Do we have our knots where they ought? In a loving way, not in a legalistic way, the Bible says, I am my brother's keeper, in a loving way. The wisest man who ever lived was right when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 4, beginning at verse 9, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Are you an uplifter as a Christian? When you see another brother, is your first reaction to pray and your second is to assist? Or is it to condemn and gossip? Now, not only must we judge if our brother or sister needs assistance so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, but we also must judge if those over us are, are shepherds or if they're hired hands or if they're actually wolves. And the scripture says you've got to judge that. You've got to be careful with that because not everybody that speaks in a stained glass voice on Sunday at a pulpit is there because God put him there. So that's number three in our outlines, friends. Christians must temporally, in the now, Christians must temporally evaluate if my preacher is a predator or if he's a purveyor of Scripture. Is he a predator or is he a purveyor of Scripture? Matthew 7, 15, Jesus tells us, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, not wolf's clothing. But inwardly, so something in their heart, they have an agenda, they have a motive, they want to get something, they're inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And you will recognize them, Jesus says, by their fruit. So over time, I can see how people respond, and you start to get an idea, what comes out of the cup, my friend, is what's inside the cup. So if I take the little thing off and I shake this around, stuff's going to come out. And if coffee comes out, that means what was in it. And if water comes out, what was in it? Right? If gasoline comes out, what was in it? And, and, and so as you look at people in their ministries and their trajectories, when their cup gets sloshed repeatedly, what comes out? Is it scripture? Is it Jesus? Is it grace? Is it truth? Is it hope? Is it love? Is it self? Is it lazy? Is it, you know, follow? Because it's going to kind of tell you whether that is a good shepherd, a hired hand, or a wolf. 
What kind of fruit? Romans 16, 17 speaks about some of the fruit we ought to avoid. Romans 16, 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're serving in the church and they're creating divisions and obstacles and problems. They're not serving Jesus, they're serving their own appetites. How? Well, the Bible says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They're slick. They're slick. So you've got to look at how they really tick. Because their stick is very, very good. 2 Peter 2 says this, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying even the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Very inventive, but they have an agenda. Titus 1 says this, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Friends, we must be discerning, or we will be deceived. So yes, according to Jesus, a Christian must use discernment. We must evaluate, we must, in some senses, we must judge. But here's what we're not to judge. Here's what we're not to judge. Here's what we're not to judge. It's point four in our outline, and from point four to the end, we're, we're basically just in our little passage of five verses. Here's what we're not to judge. Point four, Christians must not ultimately evaluate another true servant's value. Christians must not ultimately evaluate another true servant's true value. Listen to our text again in verse 4. This is how one ought to regard us, and he was speaking of himself and Apollos and all the other leaders in the church, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So whose servants are we? Well, we're God's servants. Whose mysteries are we stewarding? We're stewarding God's mysteries, not, not ours. Then listen to verse 4 again. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So this judgment comes when Christ comes. Do you see that? It's not for now. It's when Christ comes. It's up to Christ to judge it. And the only thing you receive at this judgment is commendation. There's no condemnation. This is for believers. It's a judgment of rewards given by the rewarder, our great and gracious king. And so ultimate rewards are ultimately God's prerogative. It is God who shall decide rightly who really was faithful. And that is something to which we are utterly incapable. But boy, do we ever try, right? We give it a shot. Which brings us to point A today. We value celebrity, ability, and notoriety. God values humble, faithful service to Jesus. We value celebrity and notoriety and ability, but God values humble, faithful service to Jesus. 
Again, look at the first verse of our passage today, friends. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, think about what was happening in Corinth, friends. Think about why he's saying what he's saying here. Uh, The Corinthians were lauding their favorite preacher. I follow Paul, you follow Apollos, you follow Cephas. And God's word says no. Both Paul and Apollos, what are they? They're just servants of Jesus. Now that word servant in the Greek is very unusual. Um, the, The word you normally get for servant in Greek is diakonos. It's from the word that we get the office of deacon, one who serves the church in, in a ministry of service. It literally means someone who waits tables. That's not the word the Holy Spirit uses here. Uh, Paul does not use diakonos. He uses a very rare word called huperetes. Huperetes. And it literally means huper, under, retes, rower, and under, rower. What? Okay. Uh, huperetes is a nautical word, and in this case, it's a radical word, and you ought to understand what's happening. We're going to come back and talk about it again in a few weeks' time. Ancient Greek navies, all right? So go to the, go to the ancient world, think about their navies. The ancient Greeks had a really devastating ship, and it was called the trireme. The trireme, one, two, three, guess what it had? It had three of something, okay? It had, uh, uh, it, 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 instead of most ships in the ancient world that had, that had sails and, and a few oars in case there was no wind, they had three sets of rowers. They had 180 rowers on three decks of 60, and and they would row as the drummer would beat, and that's how the ship would go, and it went a devastatingly fast for the ancient world, a blazing fast, six knots without a sail, and it had a huge brass thingamajig, I think that's the technical term, a ram in the front, and the way it worked is it would go six knots right into the broadside of the enemy and you would sink to the bottom. And they were devastating. Island nation with a navy of sinker ships. Pretty powerful. Now, for Paul to say that he's an under-rower is an extremely significant statement because the under-rower was the lowest and least glamorous of all the slaves. He was not only rowing on the ship, but he was on the lowest, stinkiest, hottest, least glamorous, worst deck. Do you see the juxtaposition in Scripture? The Corinthians were elevating their preachers. Paul took the exact opposite approach. For friends, we value celebrity and notoriety and ability, but God values humble, faithful service to Jesus. This is how you should regard us as under-rowers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Brings us to point B. We reward the gifted, the talented, and the celebrated. God rewards those who are good stewards of whatever God has entrusted. We reward the gifted and the talented and the celebrated, but God rewards those who are good stewards of whatever they've been entrusted. The Bible says this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards, that's an important word, of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found something. And what's that something? Faithful. Now, the word steward in the Greek is an important word as well. It's it's, uh, uh, oikonomos. Oikonomos. Uh, Nomos means law. 
And oikos means house. And so literally, this person is the law of the house. It was the slave who was given charge over all of his master's affairs. The house was not his. The management of the house was his. Joseph was a steward over Potiphar's house, which meant he controlled everything and he owned nothing. All right? Owning virtually nothing, controlling virtually everything. The oikonomos is a special servant who the master entrusts with the administration of his property and his business for his good. The servant's job was to devote his time and his talents and his energies towards executing his master's agenda, not his own betterment. So what are specifically God's ministers, stewards over? The Bible says they're stewards over the mysteries of God. The, the, the scriptures, preach the word, the handling of the text, devoting yourself to the public reading of scripture, the teaching and to preaching, to rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what you primarily should be getting from a gospel minister is the gospel truth. Not simply what sells in the marketplace of relevance. In 2019, we reward the gifted, we reward the talented, we reward the celebrated, but in our passage today, God rewards those who are good stewards of whatever they've been entrusted. You and I don't pick what gifts we have, do we? Scriptures tell us God does. And so I don't know what God has gifted you with, but how you use that is how God will ultimately reward you. Someone might be smarter, better educated, better looking, wealthier. But whatever you have, if you use it 100% for Jesus, God will grade you based on what you were given. And you know what? That person to whom much is given, much is required. That's why we kind of make mistakes when we do the grading in this area that should belong to God alone. C, we're often slaves to public opinion regarding our service for Jesus. But God is the only opinion that really should matter. You and I... There's something in us, we kind of are slaves to how others evaluate us. But Scripture's saying, really the only one that matters is God's opinion of our service. And so if you took verse 3 out of context, if you didn't understand everything he was saying in the book of Corinthians, you could think, well, I think Paul seems pretty arrogant here in verse 3. I mean, uh, you know, in verse 3 he says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court, and it sounds pretty arrogant. But, but Paul isn't arrogant. He just said that he's an under-rower, the lowest thing he could pretty much choose, uh, and that he was a steward. It's all someone else's stuff. So it can't be arrogance that he meant. He meant something else. He said again, this is how one should regard us as under-rowers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of a steward that they be found faithful, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, the Corinthians, or by any human court. Paul is saying, you know what? I'm not rowing to the beat of the other rowers. Bet you should row because I'm rowing. This is how we're all rowing. Get with the tune. You're not rowing the way we're rowing. We're going this way. This is... I'm going to row to the beat of my master. He sets the cadence and the direction and the timing. That's how we're going to do this. Paul's saying, I'm not looking to the opinions of my fellow minions. I'm not looking to the accolades of my fellow house slaves. I'm only looking to please my master. 
So you and I should serve, when we serve, we should serve in such a way that our primary goal is to please Jesus. Not necessarily the rest of us. Now, we ought not serve in order to make everyone mad, but if we do have to make a choice between honoring Jesus and being popular, which one's the right choice? Which one's the hard choice, though? It's not people we're called to please. For whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we should do it all to the glory of our Twitter followers. No. Uh, we live in an age where the world is our stage. We are easily swayed by how others perceive us instead of how Jesus one day will receive us. And friends, you need to understand that will always deceive us. Are you living in light of future reward from a future king? The writer of Hebrews reminds us, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you get the prize. Jesus urges us regarding our service to strive to hear this, well done, good and faithful servant. Now just as opinions of others must not be our guide, so too it is true in our own hearts and minds that we can sometimes be too easy on ourselves or too harsh on ourselves and both of them are probably somewhat wrong. Point D is this, we're often deceived in our own opinions regarding our own service to Jesus, but God's is the only opinion that's truly accurate. We're often deceived in our own opinions and our service to Jesus, but God's opinion is the only one that is truly accurate. Listen to our text again. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, meaning... I don't not judge myself because I know i got stuff in the closet that I don't want to deal with. No, but even though I don't know of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul knows that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He knows that sometimes we can tell ourselves that, you know, we're a water walker when we're probably a sinker and a stinker. Right? That's why God gives us spouses because they share where we... Hey, water walker! Oh, yeah. Um, that way, we're not deceived. Because it's really easy to think more highly of ourselves than we, than we ought. It's really easy to think less of someone else than we should and more highly of ourselves than we ought. Just something to do with being sinners, I think, friends. And, and for some saints, it's not that we're too easy on ourselves. It's that we're too hard. I, I, I've met some Christians who live and they have an abusive inner monologue where whatever they do, it's not enough. They have some view of God like he's this tyrannical taskmaster, probably because they had some earthly example who was like that. They had a boss, a father, an uncle, a cousin, a mom, and it was like, whatever you did, you know, I brought home straight A's. Oh, only straight A's? <laughs> you know. And you feel like, wow, I could just never measure up. So I want you to look at point one, if this is the wrong inner monologue in your head. God waits until all the fruit is harvested from our labors before judging our efforts. God waits until all the fruit is harvested in our labors before judging our efforts. The Bible says, verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. And the time isn't now, the time is later. 
before the Lord comes. So the time is when the Lord comes to judge us, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness. There are things in our lives that are now hidden in darkness. And then each one will receive his commendation. It's not condemnation. It's not, oh, there's things in your life that are bad, and you know, you're going to get zapped for that. This is commendation, not condemnation. So there are things that God is going to reward that right now we're not sure that we deserve any rewards. Because all the fruit isn't in yet, friends. We may think we're a failure because we lack the results that we thought. Uh, we thought faithfulness brought this result, but friends, the Bible says some plant, some water, and some reap. Uh, you may have some kid in your second grade VBS class who the most successful mission is you told them about Jesus and they didn't murder any of the other children. And you feel like you were kind of a failure because your goal by, week, by day two was that there were no homicides. But God may not be done with what he's going to do in that kid's life. And your contribution, how many times have we heard testimonies of somebody who's 50 or 60 years old that says, do you remember Miss, and she has some, you know, antiquated name, Miss Eunice, whatever, and, 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 and Miss Eunice told us back in 50 years ago, and that little seed never left them. Or Miss Eunice loved on me and told me I had value, and there was no one else in my life who ever, and they remembered that. You don't know. We plant seeds, we don't know what will grow, we don't know how much fruit it will yield, but if we stop planting seeds, I know what will grow. God waits until all the fruit is harvested from our labors before judging our efforts. If you only looked at the first seven years of William Carey's ministry, your evaluation would be failure. Nobody got saved and nothing happened. Today, he's considered the father of the Protestant missions movement because he persevered for seven years without a single convert and then he made a huge impact for Jesus through his service. There was a man named Hudson Taylor and uh, he went to China and he looked around and all the missionaries were dressed like Englishmen with wigs and special stuff and they lived in special houses and they had servants and he said I'm going to dress like the Chinese I'm going to eat like the Chinese I'm going to live like the Chinese and the Englishman said he is a bad missionary he is a bad guy and they got tremendous abuse from the people of God it's horrible things were said about them his principle of indigenization was actually a Pauline principle to the Romans I'm a Roman to the Greeks I'm a Greek to the Jew I'm a and to the British that was a problem and history has proven that those other missionaries living with their servants didn't make much impact. But China Inland Mission took the gospel all throughout the country. And many came to Christ. According to the word of God, the ultimate assessment of our service is not congregational, it's not denominational, it's not even personal. It's the assessment of our master. Because we're his servants. Now, just as we can be too harsh on ourselves and, and fail to understand that, that planting and watering are just as noble in farming if we're faithful as the one who's blessed with reaping and harvesting, so too it is true we can be too hard on other brothers in our limited understanding of their serving, which brings us to Arabic 2. God's light shines bright on what we would otherwise miss in all this. God's light shines bright in what we would otherwise miss in all this. Look again at verse 5. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and then each one will receive his commendation from God. One Christian writer speaking on this subject said some things that I'm going to paraphrase. He urges us all to remember this. The fact is, we never know all the facts. The fact is, we never know all the facts. How do we know the idiot driver didn't just lose his spouse two days before and is a little distracted on the turnpike? Uh, How do we know the rude saleswoman didn't just discover her young daughter has cancer and she's not as friendly as she would normally be at Macy's? How do we know the Christian who was sort of cussing up a storm at the work site didn't just recently accept Jesus and the Holy Spirit hasn't really worked in this area of their life yet? How do we know? God's light shines bright on otherwise what we would miss in all of this. God knows all of the mitigating circumstances around our sometimes meager service. How many of you would like to have done something different this week? Like to have said something different, reacted differently, handled that differently, right? And what if the one time you catch that person was that one time? Would you want to be evaluated on just that one incident? No, we want grace when we're evaluated, and we want law when that dude is, right? That's just because we're sinners, right? Thank God Jesus is not like us. Will not the judge of all the earth do, and mercy triumphs over judgment? That was a word that was missing there. Okay, Um, we'll do scripture review later. All right, so God's light shines bright on what we would otherwise miss in all of this. God knows all the mitigating circumstances surrounding our sometimes meager service. But you know what God also knows? God also knows who among us has all the advantages and just skates and coasts and does as little as they can get away with for as long as they can get away with it instead of putting their hand to the plow and not looking back. See, God knows both ways. God knows both ways. And that's the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus sees us in the light because Jesus is the light. In him there is no darkness at all. God not only sees the true, the true who's and the true what's and the true how's of our service, but friends, God also sees the why's of what you and I do. And that brings us to Arabic 3 today. God evaluates and rewards our motives. Why you do what you do matters to Jesus. God evaluates and rewards our motives, not just our actions. Look again at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the what? Purposes of the heart. The the motives. Why did you do that? Did you do that because you loved me or did you do that because you loved them and you wanted them to respond? Friends, when it comes to worship, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And Jesus can see right into our hearts in a way no one else can. Sometimes in a way even we can't. In John 1.1, the Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. So Jesus is the Word. He's the living Word. Now, this is what the Bible says about the written Word. The written Word. Hebrews 4 says of the written Word, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, the discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Friends, if the written word can do that, what do you think the living word can do? I think it can see right in and see just where I do what I do and why do I do 
what I do. And so Romans 2.16 says, On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus has already told us in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so now if you're a Christian, that ought to lead you not to fear, but to rejoice in. Romans 8 sets us straight, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The ultimate judgment has already been borne by the judge. If you're in Jesus, you're forgiven. The question is, work for the rewards that he will gladly give. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is worth repeating. Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. There's a, there's a just judgment coming, but if you've made peace with God through the blood of the Son, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. Which brings us to our final point today, letter E. For believers, God's judgment leads to rewards, not punishments. For believers, God's judgment leads to rewards, not punishments. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation. Not condemnation, commendation from God. A few Sundays back, we looked extensively at 1 Corinthians 3, and I'd like for you to turn there for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, 10. We're almost at the end. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if any man builds on this foundation, on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, using the best he has, if you, if you use gold and silver and costly stones or wood, hay, and stubble, that believer's work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of our service for Jesus. And if what he's built survives, he's going to receive reward from Jesus. And if it's burned up, he's going to suffer loss of what God would otherwise graciously give us in reward. He himself will be saved because our salvation is not by works that no man can boast. Our salvation is by grace. He himself will be saved but as one escaping only through the Friends, I want you to receive a rich reward from Jesus. I want you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. For our God is no tyrant. He's a good, good father. And he longs to reward us for faithfulness. But we've got to decide whether we're going to be faithful. I want you to be with me in eternity. But in order to do that, you must make peace with God on God's terms. And this was God's terms. God's terms were written at length in the law. And this was God's terms. Be holy, for I am holy. Now the sad fact is, you know what? You and I can never meet those terms. After Adam, we all like sheep. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have sinned. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has already heaped all of the sin we will ever muster onto the shoulders of Jesus, who was blameless. Which is why 1 Peter 2.24 is clear. You might want to write it in your bulletins. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, 
so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness and by His wounds. Sinner, you can be healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is true. God made Him, that is Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin in Him to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' cry from the cross is true. Do you know what He cried? He cried in Aramaic, Tetelestai. It is finished. You don't have to work for it. You can't earn it. You just have to receive it. You have to repent and believe that Jesus is God and make Him the Lord of your life. And if so, He'll save you from whatever you've done and He'll walk with you all the way to eternity and then there's no condemnation in store for you, my friend. My question for you this Father's Day is have you done that? Not is it true, it is true. Not did dad do that, or mom did that, or a guy next to you. The question is for you. Have you done that? Nicodemus was the most righteous man of his day. He was the teacher of the law. He knew scripture better than just about anybody else. He was a Pharisee, which meant he was very scrupulous. He was one of the few Pharisees who was on the Sanhedrin, which was mostly the Sadducees, and yet they let him in because he was just so wonderful. And this man went to Jesus at night, and he said, How does this work? What must I do to be saved? How does this whole... And Jesus said, you must be born again. Most righteous man who lived in Israel, knew the Bible better than any person here today, peerless and a sinner. He too needed to be born again. With every head bowed and every eye closed, in the quietness of your heart, if you know about Jesus, but you've not given your life to Jesus... If you know that you're a sinner, but you have yet to receive Jesus as your personal Savior, I want to encourage you to do today the most important thing you can ever do, and that's repent and believe. Receive Christ as your Savior. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you part of that everyone? Are you ready to trust in Jesus? If you want to, your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And I know that I need a Savior. And I know there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That He lived sinlessly. That He died vicariously and substitutionally for my sin. And then he rose victoriously to show that death, hell, and the devil have no hold on the Holy One of Christ. I ask that you would make me your child and help me to walk in newness of life. Reshape my mind that I might think biblically and not culturally. Reshape my words that I might share the gospel faithfully and boldly. Reshape my actions and interactions and bring wholeness where there's been brokenness. Give me joy where there's been anxiety. Give me hope and peace. And give me a hunger for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.